0: But it's still a really simplistic game. It's about execution. It's about ball handling. It's about playing physical and tackling people and putting them on the ground. It's, it's really not hard. We try to make it hard, but it, what's funny is, is when you look at this stuff, the simplicity of the game is usually where you lose.
1: Hey, come on in. Have a seat. Can I get you something to drink? here we go it's time for the Tulsa Sports Drill The Tulsa Sports Drill podcast is underwritten by the Lawyers of Kendall Whittier. Find them online at kendallwhittierlaw.com. Let's run the drill. We'll start with this, Jerry O. A week before Christmas 1991, you're on a stage in Nashville taping Bob Hope's Christmas TV special for NBC as part of being named an AP All American, obviously. What's running through your head? What's running through my head is, and by the way, I have that picture about 15 feet from us. I'll show
0: you before before you leave. One of the things you get in the mail a couple of weeks after you do this, uh, do the taping, all of a sudden it comes to the mail and you have a, a headshot of you and Bob Hope. And Bob's got the mic there and you get an autograph, autograph Bob Hope picture oddly enough when I was a kid one of the things we always did as a family it was it was kind of wild like my my mom and dad were very much into the variety show scene um we were a lot of pe a lot of public broadcast channel um father was a big music guy so every year we watched the Bob Hope special and every year you saw the football you know the AP All-American team get introduced and I always said I'm gonna be on that one day and I was a, like it was a big deal to me and then all of a sudden. Here I am getting, you know, it was, the funny thing was, it was, you know, unlike the other guys who get to go to Acapulco and Hawaii, ours was Christmas in Nashville, <laughs> and Nashville literally was about three degrees below zero. They shot this thing on a high school field. The field was brown. It was dead Bermuda grass. They painted like a 20-yard spot green. They had X's and stuff on the field, and I'm like, oh, I guess that's where, but literally, we're standing out there freezing. No Bob Hope. All of a sudden, here comes this stretch limo. They drive this limo up literally about 10 feet from that, um, maybe not quite that close, but from that X. He gets out, and they put him directly in a golf cart and drive the golf cart like literally for two seconds to the spot. He gets out. They hand him the mic. One take perfection. No mistakes, no nothing. Has every joke down. Everything is just hammered perfect. Gets in that golf cart, goes back to the limbo, hops in and drives
1: away. That That's was- how you achieve legendary status. <laughs> right? That was that was our that was the Bob Hope show. <laughs> I you know, maybe this will age both of us. You're a little older than me, but I used to watch that all the time on television I too. It was it. such a big deal because you didn't have all the outlets in terms right. of the, the sports media that you do now and it was on the networks and I didn't have cable television growing up as a kid, so that's right. all I watched were the networks.
0: Well, that was your first chance of seeing, really, unless you caught the Rose Bowl or the Sugar Bowl or something, that was really your first chance of seeing nationwide football. I mean, you didn't, well, I was a Penn State fan growing up. You didn't know what, you know, you didn't really look at the Pac 12 or the Pac 10 at the time. And we knew Oklahoma because Oklahoma was playing for national championships, but you were in your own region. And so when you had that all American show, you got to see people from across the country, but. No, it was uh it was really really cool. Kind of like a you know, one of those one of those things, one of those bucket list deals you always wanted to do
1: and you ended up doing it. That's so Bob Hope, the golf cart. He introduced you by stating you were so big <laughs> as a newborn that you had to be born in three cities in Pennsylvania. Was that doing that show like an out of body experience? <laughs> he dude? said
0: I was he said I was so big, I was the largest baby in in three counties or three cities, yeah. No, it really was. I mean it was like I said, I mean this is I didn't know any I mean this this guy's a, a star. I mean this is a this is a legend. I never met anybody like that. I'm down into, you know, I think the I think the biggest maybe other than Al Jerkins, the <laughs> the biggest <laughs> the biggest legend I had met was I think I met uh I met uh Ronnie Dunn from Brooks and Dunn. And an event that i was working at and uh some other people that were there but i mean this was like this was a big deal to me i i grew up in a very close you know italian family we didn't really travel anywhere i mean we were
1: my my first trip on an airplane was coming down here getting recruited by tulsa let's hit the time portal take you back to growing up in Pottstown, pennsylvania born and raised near philly what was the big o like as a youngster you're an only <laughs> child
0: uh i was probably incredibly spoiled from my mother my mother was i my mother when you're an only child you get and you know you got your only one i mean you get that smothered love man i mean everything you do and not only do you get smothered love all the time and you're you're constantly being you know i don't want to say coddled but protected watched whatever um and you're not sharing any attention with any other sibling um, you know, you're also, you're speaking with adults all the time. Like my father was the best man of my wedding and there's a really, you know, other than, you know, he's my, was my best friend. It's the fact that we had a, a relationship like that because that's who you, you know, when you're an only child, you're talking to your parents, you're talking to their friends and those types of things. So it was, uh, I was all about sports. I was all about playing outside. I was all about tearing up, you know, my, my Sears and Roebuck Huskies when my mom was patching them every week. And I was about the outdoors. We did a lot of hunting and fishing when I was a kid. So, um, yeah, that's how it was when I was when I was growing up. Yeah, you, you have to mature faster as an only child. I think you do. There's no or doubt. maybe it forces you to. It really does. I mean, I had nobody to look to. Like I said, when I got on an airplane to to take a recruiting visit to Tulsa, it was my first trip on an airplane. And then when I decided that I'm going to go to TU, I get on an airplane and I fly across the country and. I had just turned 18 two weeks before I got here, and here I am and showed up with two uh, Air Force
1: duffel bags and never went back. Your parents, Jerry Sr. and Helen, who were the people that instilled a love of sports and competition in you?
0: Uh, it was my it was my father. I mean, my father was a sports guy, and my mother would like sports. I mean, she didn't come in and go, "Oh, you're watching football," and you know, leave. I mean, she she watched football religiously. She was an Eagles fan. She liked the Flyers. They went to Flyers games all the time. Um, so that's what it was. It was my parents. It was my family, and then being the young kid on the block, you went out and played, and we I played in a pack of kids, and you usually play with the older kids, you know. And the older kids were playing sports, they're playing basketball and all that stuff, and. I mean, you just, you, you, you went about your business. That's how you learn. So besides my
1: parents, just, you know, my family, kids, and neighborhood, things like that. How early were you out doing hunting? Picking up a, I don't know, maybe a bow and arrow at the time or a rifle? or.
0: It was 12. Back in Pennsylvania, you had to do hunter safety and all that. So it was 12 years of age. I could go with my father and, you know, watch and whatever. And they had some youth stuff. But, but really the, uh, the first definite. Me going as my own entity,
1: you have to be 12 years of age. We can probably guess then which colleges, teams, athletes you idolized as a kid and a a teenager based on where you come from. Who were your favorites? Well,
0: obviously Bobby Clark for the Philadelphia Flyers. was was The Broad Street Bullies. Was my favorite hockey player of all time. (laughs) Still is. Um, You look at the Eagles, and obviously – Back when they were making their run to the Super Bowl in the '80s, and the, you know they went 1980, they played in Superdome against the the Oakland Raiders. You had Wilbur Montgomery and Ron Jaworski and those types of guys. But you know my favorite player of all time for with the Philadelphia Eagles uniform was was Reggie White. Um, love Reggie. Got to play against Reggie was another amazing moment in my life. So you had Reggie. Of course you had Doctor J. Growing up, '83, they win the World Championship against the Lakers. Their battles against the Celtics. Um, baseball-wise, I love the Bull, Greg, Le- Greg Uh I like Bob Boone because I caught and he caught. Um, so those are some of the players you know with Philadelphia sports teams. But that's what I try to. I tell my kids, I go, "You guys don't understand what it's like." I go, "I feel so bad for you." They're like, what do you mean? I go, "You don't have a." You don't have four pro, you know. You don't have. You don't live by a city like I did. Like with inside of an hour, I was born into that, and I I still, even as a big of a Bills fan as I am, because that's where I played for ten years. I'm still born into the Eagles. I mean, we're on this balcony right here. They win the Super Bowl against the Patriots. I'm screaming off this balcony. Something I never thought I'd say. Did you jump into the pool? (laughs) I didn't jump into the pool, but I did scream. So it's it's just something you're born into, and uh, I'll always. I'll always be an you know a Philadelphia fan. I like the Eagles. I like the you know Sixers. Allen Iverson, um, Chase Utley. You know you go from when you're a young kid and your favorite players to the kids the guys you like as you get older. Uh, obviously, Daw- uh, Dawkins for the Eagles. Chase Utley, Allen Iverson. You know, list goes on.
1: When I met you several years ago now and found out that you were from the Philly area, I always envisioned a Vince Papali type life. <laughs> for you right i right. mean it's just the way that that movie was filmed and and shot around the philadelphia eagles obviously and his you know making the team as as an outsider basically right. such a cool cool movie it's uh well, it was it was definitely interesting i think it was it was it was glorified a little bit oh sure any hollywood uh adaptation is what age then did you first take up football well it's funny um that you say that
0: where i grew up we um We had football differently than they do here. Back where I grew up, they had Pop Warner-sanctioned football. Pop Warner football is weight limit football. So I think – I can't remember what the highest weight limit was. Um, I think it was maybe 125s or something like that. But just to kind of give you an idea, you know, all the kids playing 125s were like 12 and 13, and I was like 9 when I was 125 (laughs) pounds. So my father and mother would never let me play football. I wanted to play – football they would not let me play I'm grateful they didn't because it put me in other sports to where I was a three season sports kid from second grade I played three seasons of sports until I graduated high school I played baseball I played basketball and instead of playing football I played soccer I was a goaltender and uh, my parents were always worried about me being big and getting too heavy so they always had me doing activities when I got to seventh grade, that's when school football started. So I played football instead of soccer, and I, play, I wrestled instead of playing basketball. And then that's how it progressed
1: from there out. So you wanted to play football years earlier than you actually organized anyway, than you actually did. I'm sure you played tackle football like I did with older <laughs> siblings or older friends out in the neighborhood. Yeah, we
0: had – one of my good friends from the neighborhood was Phil Geisler. Phil had three other brothers. He, had, he was the youngest of four boys. And usually the football games were were, were Lenny, Mark, Richie, and Phil, me, a couple other kids from the neighborhood. We all played. Something would happen. Everybody get mad. And by the end of it, the other three older brothers would be beating up Phil somewhere. I mean, someone would get house. injured, right? right? exactly. Something would happen. Our backyard games were rougher probably than some of the padded games that those kids played. But, um, no, I always wanted to play. But I, it, here's the thing about football. If you play a kid too early and he's not ready, you will scar him and he will hate it. You have to be mature enough to play. It has nothing to do with physical ability. It has nothing to do with how big you are. It has nothing to do with how fast you run. I mean these these people that take these young third grade kids or whatever to trainers. I'm just like, what are they doing? I mean, it's like, <clears throat> you know, you you can't get any muscle mass on your body until you hit puberty. You just hormonally can't do it. So football though is that way. It's like if you don't if you're not if you're not mentally mature
1: enough to handle it, it doesn't work. Most football players never forget their high school coach, whether the impact was (laughs) positive or negative, because it can go both ways. I read you had a coach that that forever influenced your passion for the sport at Owen J. Roberts High School. Who was he? Well, I had two coaches that, that
0: did it, but the one was Hank Burnett. That was our head coach. You know, Hank was a guy that coached forever. He would be like the Hank was the Alan Trimble or or Bill Blankenship of where I grew up. Mm. Uh, he was a head coach for, I think, 30-plus years. Um, very simplistic football. We ran dive right and left. We ran a couple of traps. We ran a bootleg. And you played a five-man front and a 5-2 defense, and you you just got after it. And he, you know, really – the influence of him and the fact that football – we watch football nowadays, and we see all this stuff that people do, and the spreads, and the no huddles, and the RPOs. But it's still a really simplistic game. It's about execution. It's about ball handling. It's about playing physical and tackling people and putting them on the ground. It's it's really not hard. We try to make it hard, but it, what's funny is, is when you look at this stuff, the simplicity of the game is usually where you lose. We watched Army this weekend because my son just recently committed there. Army lost the game, played wonderful defense. They did something they never do. They had a lot of penalties. Their execution wasn't good. And they run a very simplistic scheme. And if they're not right in those areas, they're probably not going to win. And they didn't win. So it's just funny that Hank always, you know, hard work and that. And then Joe Edwards, who was our D coordinator, and – um Henry just, you know, Hank just passed away. Coach Burnett just passed away at 91 years of age. Wow. Uh, Joe, unfortunately, passed away a while ago. He got sick, but same type of guy, fiery. It was about toughness, playing hard, effort, attitude, those types of things. Again, things that are very simplistic. Um, so that's, that's what I learned from those guys. They, they influenced me all the way till I was done playing. Before
1: you hit high school, were you already – a grinder, fiery, tough. A lot of only children don't have that trait until maybe later in You're life. You're good, man. You're really good. Um, I was tough, but I wasn't
0: tough. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Not I a was fake a... tough,
1: you just yeah, you I kind was... of thought you were, but Yeah, I kinda
0: of thought I wasn't fake tough. I was a tough I mean I could I wasn't a boohoo kid where oh I got a little scratch on my arm. I mean I played through stuff, but there was things that I had to work on and when I got to high school, those guys helped me with those things, and then when I got to college, my college coach even took it to the nth degree. And really, the only reason I probably played in the pros was because of him. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a great that's a great point. Only children usually aren't that way, but but my family was a blue collar. Go to work. You're sick. Here's a cough drop. Put on an extra sweatshirt and get your butt to school, type of family. And even though my mother did, you know, protect me and coddle me, probably more so against my with my dad than anything else. But um, no, they didn't. You know, it wasn't like you boohooed and stay home. You
1: you you got up and you did what you needed to do. I I was three credit hours away from a sociology major at the University of Missouri St. Louis, but I only feel that way or or sense that because of watching my own. Yeah. only child yeah. not quite have that killer instinct that his mother had as an athlete right. or that i had in a single parent household growing right. up i mean your yeah. circumstances may develop that but totally yeah.
0: but i think also too and you know i grew up a little differently than some i grew up around my family you know i had my grandparents my father my grandfather he was a teamster he loaded trucks um He was a foreman on the docks loading trucks. His job that he worked at for the most part of his life before he switched over to Thriftway Foods was for a company called Toes Trucking. Toes, if you know that name, Leonard Toes was Toes Trucking. Leonard Toes owned the Eagles uh, all the way back when they went to the Super Bowl in 80 80 with Dick Vermeule. Dick Vermeule still to this day basically has bought a house for Leonard and gives him an allowance because he's got a gambling problem. And Dick still takes care of him, or he up to. I think he might have passed away, but um, yeah. My family, my grandmother, she was, she was, you know, my mother was. They, my mother told a story the other day. They lived in a three story farmhouse in Bridgeport. Each each sibling had a level of the house, and my mother was born, and three days later she was in a little papoose on the front of my grandmother, and she was out picking stuff, working in the garden. I mean, it's what you did, so it was hard to. I mean, it was hard to not see those type of examples all the time. And, you know, those things help mold you into what you are.
1: You mentioned wrestling and baseball in high school. In fact, hit four twenty eight your last couple of seasons in high school as a catcher, first baseman, and DH. Were were there any prospects or hopes for a future in that sport? Uh, The the word is there was a uh, – the Yankee scout was at
0: our game one time and said that kid had a future if he lost 100 pounds. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because I was playing like (laughs) – I was well like, like, I was like, my senior year, I was like a three hundred pound. I was, I had. What had happened was, I I played football, and I knew I was going to Tulsa, so I didn't want to wrestle because I was I was going to have to cut weight. And I'm like, I'm not cutting weight, so <laughs> I went ahead and started going to the gym with some buddies. This is when the gym thing just started happening. Like, we went to the Pottstown Health Club, and they had this new stuff called Nautilus equipment, and you went through the circuit of the Nautilus stuff, and it was, you know. Well, I went in there and gained a bunch of muscle mass and gained, like, another 15 pounds. So, I'm playing baseball at like, 300 pounds. My coach was pissed because I was too big. You know, so he couldn't. The umpires were complaining that they couldn't see the balls and strikes. So, I'm going. I can't remember the catcher who it was, but I'm sitting on my, on my rear end with my leg kicked out, catching, trying to show him strike zone, you know. And, uh, anyway, to make a long story short, that was supposedly the joke that, scout at the game it was supposed to be a Yankees guy, so that guy loses his 100 pounds, he could
1: be a prospect. I mean, Cecil Fielder? There have been bigger uh, guys play
0: in the major leagues. I loved baseball, but I wasn't a baseball player. Okay. I didn't, I didn't have <laughs> – I, I wasn't a five-tool guy, so to speak. I,
1: um, <clears throat> I didn't have the – I didn't quite have the arm to play behind the plate. When you played high school ball, squared off against Phoenixville High School – standout future hall of famer Mike Piazza did you think you were watching one of the soon to be greats of the game when you faced off with piazza mike mike was the mike was amazing to
0: me because mike was a big slow lumbering first baseman that hit absolute bombs and he was the same way he is than as he is when he wasn't playing in the major leagues, and what happened was, and the real story behind all this, everybody likes to throw this, you know, Tommy Lasorda. He was it was his godfather and all. This yeah, stuff. that's the nice narrative, right? Right. The narrative is this. The narrative is is Vince Piazza is his father. Vince Piazza in nineteen seventy eight seventy nine. I don't know if you remember. They had this. You remember when we used to you had to go get gas on even and odd days. They had like a gas shortage in the United States. So, he got smart, and he opened up these car dealerships, and he sold these new high-mileage cars called Datsuns, okay? So, everybody's buying Datsuns because of this gas thing, right? So, all of a sudden, the gas crisis is is over, and nobody wants to buy a Datsun anymore because, you know, we're Americans, and we're going to buy, you know? So, anyway, he gets rid of the Datsuns, and he fills them with this, he takes the dealerships, and he flips them over to this new luxury car called Lexus. So basically, to make a long story short, Vince was well-to-do for a while. And he built Mike a heated and cooled batting cage in the backyard. There you go. An indoor batting cage. He would come home, and, he, and, it's, and it's true. He would, he would take 500 cuts a day. 500 cuts a day. 500 cuts a day. And he just worked himself into this offensive machine where they were like, look, I don't care what you do with them. But figure out a way to get him on the field because right. he has to play. Because his, his, his run production far was superior to his lapses or his, you know, inabilities on defense. So, anyway, to make a long story short, he goes to Miami, University of Miami. He leaves there, goes to Miami-Dade. Out of a favor for the family because the Sorter's from Narstown, Vince Piazza's from Narstown. They know everybody. They pick him in the 60-whatever round, like 64th round. He goes out to Vegas. And they say, okay, we're going to teach you how to catch. And that's, that's, that's the rest of it. I mean, he's a self-made guy. He is a, I have the utmost respect for him because he worked himself to
1: being a Hall of Fame player. How does a boy from Pennsylvania decide that the University of Tulsa is where you need to play college football and further in education?
0: Well, I had offered to go to Temple, and I was not going to go to Temple. Interesting thing about that was I was offered by first-time head coach Bruce Arians he was the coach at Temple I'm a was Cardinal his, fan so very his familiar it's it. yeah. his first head coaching job he left Bama I had to go to Temple um, I could have gone there I could have gone to a bunch of the Pennsylvania state schools um, Penn, uh, Penn State wanted me to walk on that's the only place everyone wanted to go and I'm like well, how am I going to go to Penn State when I have scholarships elsewhere Rutgers offered me but I looked at Rutgers like Temple uh, Delaware offered me and so we're sitting there and then Tulsa offers me a scholarship, so my dad and I are talking. I said, "Look, pops," I said, "This is what I am going to do." I said, "We're going to fly to Tulsa, take a visit. If I like it, that's where I am going to go. If I don't like it,
1: I am going to go Delaware." It How did you a, have such conviction with saying that? You know, I just, sight you know, unseen. I, almost, it,
0: well, it, it's funny. It's just you, you know, it's like with my son upstairs. I mean, you just kind of one day you just kind of know it. Just the light switch goes on, and of course, my mother was in a panic. My grandmother was, was wearing her out every day on the phone because how could you, what kind of mother are you to let your son go halfway $1,500? across the country to yeah. Yeah, go to college? So she was, you know, she was a horrible mother. All this stuff goes on. We got on a plane. I flew out here, and I just loved it. And I've been here since 88 and haven't gone
1: back. What were your first impressions of Tulsa in the late 1980s after you had settled on campus and had a chance to glean a little bit mm-hmm. about what the city had to offer?
0: I like the city. It was there was a lot of stuff to do. It seemed like you get around places really, really easily. The team at the time had twenty, twenty plus guys from Pennsylvania and Canada on the team, so we had a ton of guys from back home I could relate to. But again, I look at it and it's the same thing that Coach Rader used to always say about Tulsa. When you say what's the best thing about the University of Tulsa, it's the same thing about the city of Tulsa. It's the people. I mean, I'm a very people oriented person, and the people here were were awesome they still are awesome and um you know that's why i decided to
1: go here you just mentioned your coach at tu now oklahoma state rep dave raider what kind of coach was he when you first arrived here
0: it's odd um dave was a very he was the youngest division one head coach at the time and we both got here at the same time i was actually recruited by george henshaw Dave was the offensive coordinator. He had come back from Alabama and um, where he had worked with Ray Perkins, a relationship they had had bonded at, at the New York Giants. And um, before I even got here, Henshaw left and went to the Denver Broncos as the O-line coach. Uh, George was here one year. Dave took the job. I just remember, you know, I didn't think nothing of it. He was a very – it was funny. He, he spoke in ways – we always make. We still make jokes this day. Dave always answered questions with questions. He was one of those types of guys. He made you think. Uh, you respected him, and he never. He never dog cussed any of us. Um, Dave, there's a couple. You know, there's words that I've never heard Dave say at all, ever, and never will. There's a couple kind of like cuss word lights, like you know, like your dams and. Some other words. If he said those words, other guys say those words like you don't even think nothing of it. It's like you know, it's just that's what they do. If he said one of those words, you're like, whoa! Like it was on. He he talked a certain way and he acted a certain way and he just it's just how he he held himself. And I'd never I'd never experienced anything like it. Now my offensive line coach, he'll dog cuss you all day long, but at the end of the day he's the reason why I made it to the league because he showed me how to play he showed me how to be nasty he showed me how to play physical try to play intimidating football he showed me about technique and you know things like that but Dave as a head coach was extremely fair and uh, he treated everybody really really well
1: do you think it helped he he's from here knew the lay of the land at to you
0: there's no doubt about it I mean I think that was a huge thing. He he had as much love for the university as guys like myself do now. I mean, um, obviously, the university's gone through some tough times, and there's some things over there that are that happen. You just scratch your head, but that doesn't change your love for the place because you spent so much. You had so many good times uh, at 11th and Harvard. So yeah, I mean, I think it was a big deal. Did you ever think Coach
1: Rader had politics in his future?
0: Yeah, I did. I I I, I thought so because of just how he is he's a very he's a very black and white type of person and he's a very right and wrong type of person he's always his his integrity is
1: unmatched and he's always going to do the right thing take us back to September 21st 1991 Tulsa Trails Texas A&M <laughs> 28 to 10 early second half bam 19 points less than 3 minutes in the third quarter and all of a sudden TU leads by one T.J. Rubley engineers a 96-yard scoring drive in the final minutes of that game for a 35-34 victory over the 15th-ranked team in the country. Was that your most memorable victory as a collegian, or was it later that same season Freedom Bowl went over San Diego State to finish 10-2? and It was that game to me. Some will
0: say San Diego State because it was a culmination of a wonderful season. My favorite game will always be A&M because that is the game that I felt we we arrived. We kind of knew who we were. Uh, we had the hiccup in Kansas. That being said, Kansas had like four D1 draft picks off that team. I mean, they were loaded up. Glenn Mason was there, and he was, he was pulling in some people that he wondered how they came or got to be there, but they were there. Dana Stubblefield, Gilbert Brown, the name of a couple. No, I mean, that A&M game... You have to understand Tulsa is a certain type of place. You can't recruit the the prototype type kids to Tulsa. You still can't do it today. Tulsa teams that are good have a bunch of grinders on it. They have a bunch of 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 outliers, guys you don't quite know where they fit, but they fit here because they're good football players, they're intelligent players, they understand that being a student athlete is important. Um we had a bunch. I mean, I always laugh. It's kind of like the year – we always describe it. That team was like the year without the, – the show The Year Without a Santa Claus. I don't know if you remember. They, they got the land of misfit toys. And that's how we were. I mean, we had our starting center. We used to play nose guard and blew his knee out. Now he's a center. We had – TJ was on like his 19th year of, of being a college quarterback <laughs> after injury, <laughs> injury red shirts or whatever. But I think he's the only guy that's ever played OSU six times in a career or something like that or five times. Um, we just had guys from Mount Vernon, New York, Chris Hewley, who was our tailback. We had guys from Mount Vernon, Texas, um, you know, like like uh, Barry Minner. We just had a bunch of guys that didn't fit. I mean, it was, you know, heck, we had a guy that played defensive end for us and ended up winning the silver medal as a driver on the four-man bobsled team in Salt Lake City and Todd Hayes. And with Brian Thompson, who made two huge catches on that last drive before Chris Penn makes the catch on the crossing pattern – Brian was a walk-on. He was going to go to Pitt State. He tells his parents, I think I can play there. They say, Brian, you got one year, and that's it. That's all we got the money for. And he ends up getting a scholarship, and, and the rest is history. So, Tulsa teams are different when they're good. They have a bunch of guys like that, a bunch of grinder-type guys that maybe don't fit elsewhere, but they fit there. And I kind of that, – that game was kind of that game where you felt that it was all coming together.
1: Three-year starter at Tulsa. Who were some of your teammates – early in your TU career that mentored you, showed you the ropes?
0: That's the – that would be guys like uh, – we had a guy named Rich Stevens played tackle. Big Rich was was wild. Um, Chris Kaiser, who now runs FCA in northeastern Oklahoma. Kies was there. Um, Kyle Littrell, who played guard. Um, guys like that, some of the older guys. I played as a true freshman and um you know it was different you're coming in and next thing you know you're taking reps away from older guys and sometimes the older guys don't like that but um they all had influence on me tj had a big influence on me tj played as a true freshman and um so those are some of the guys
1: is it true your teammates called you andre you like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wrestling i assume that was after andre the giant <laughs> yes yeah, so it was
0: after andre giant that's another couple of guys rich Wales and dave owens who who helped me along the way? Wales and Owens came up with that. Um, now I just came in and are like, this dude's huge or whatever, and they're like, he looks like he looks like Andre the
1: Giant. You knew who, who that was. Oh yeah, that I was, was, he, was. I'm still a huge wrestling fan.
0: WWF.
1: Yeah, yeah still not WWE. Still
0: watch. But um, <laughs> and then Andre got shortened to Dre, and then the whole West Coast. Rap game started and you had Dr. Dre and then there was Yo Dre and I'd walk across campus and I'd hear somebody yell out Yo Dre and it was, so yeah, so my wife.
1: Wait, does the student section know that nickname <laughs>
0: eventually too? I think so. My wife my wife, and her family referred to me as to Andre for
1: forever until,
0: you know, that kind of wore off. But, you know, guys like Brian Thompson who coached my son at Holland Hall, he still calls
1: me Dre. Coach Rader calls me Dre. You know, lots of people still do. At what point in college you starting to think playing in the NFL could become a a serious reality? Probably not until my senior year. Um,
0: Mark Thomas sat me down and said, hey, there's going to be scouts coming and looking at you. Um, And I didn't even think about it. And, you know, scouts were coming around, see me, see TJ. We had a very good team. I mean, we had – Chris Penn went to the pros off that team. Tracy Scroggins went second round to the Detroit Lions off that team. Barry Minner was a fourth-round pick by the Cowboys, got traded to the Bears, played eight years. I played. Todd McGuire went to a camp. Mark Govey went to a camp. Fallon Way Casey got picked sixth round by the Cowboys as a tight end and ended up uh, getting hurt two years in a row. Or he'd have had a long career, 6'8 tight end that could run, former Hooper. So we had – we had guys on that team that were talented so scouts were coming because we had a lot of talent but um but no i figured you know before
1: my senior year so talent with the grinder mentality that mixture produces 10 wins yeah we were we were
0: we had some pretty we had some pretty tough dudes we had some really good leadership and you know we had some talent i mean you sprinkle those things in it was good leadership toughness tenacity grind mentality and then you got talent as they're all ingredients for for very good football teams
1: 10th round draft pick in 92 by the chiefs that cut your preseason winding road eventually reaches buffalo during the 93 season you signed for a practice squad spot with six games left there was a brief stopover in atlanta with the falcons prior to going to buffalo how did you stay ready mentally and physically for about a year that you Weren't playing organized football. I went to Kansas City,
0: and they drafted three linemen, and the, they drafted one in the eighth, one in the ninth, one in the tenth. And the one they drafted in the eighth was a guy named John Jennings from San Diego State. Kid we played against in that bowl game. Kid they drafted after him was a guy named Jay Lewinberg. That was uh, an All American from Colorado Center. And they picked me in the tenth. I was All American from Tulsa. Was playing guard. They cut me and Jay. They kept Jennings. Jennings played for. It was on the practice squad for a year and never played again. Um, Jay and I played a combined eighteen years, I think, in the Small NFL. Small
1: pros in there too. But <laughs> well, that that was a mistake. By, yeah. By the but <laughs> when you when you go
0: to a place and the, and you, when you get drafted somewhere and you walk into a room in Kansas City at the time, you got to understand this is when they had the three running backs. They had Barry Word and Harvey Williams and Christian Okoye, Dave Craig was a quarterback, had a lot of talent. You walk in a room and you see Alt, Zott, Grunhard. you know, you're like, um, yeah, there's probably not going <laughs> to be any room for us. You're just hoping to make the practice squad. So I got released, came back, uh, worked with the team, uh, as a helped as an assistant coach, um, a player assistant, worked out. And I had four places I could go sign. I could I could sign with with the uh, with the Falcons, with the Giants, with the Bills, and with the Patriots. The Falcons and the Patriots worked me out. Bills and Giants were going to sign me without working out. So I fly. I get a plane ticket. I fly to Boston, and I spend the night. I get up the next morning. There's a driver downstairs. Black, I'll never forget this, Black Lincoln, the whole nine, shebang, man. This is like stereotyping. You know, the driver's out, You know, opens the door, and you get in. And they go from Boston by the airport to Foxborough. They give me stuff to wear for the workout. I brought my own shoes. Go down to the bubble. And they go, okay, here's a ball. Snap. And I go, I don't snap. And they go, no, you're going to snap for us. We're gonna tr- we want you to play center. I'm like, uh, Okay. So the backup quarterback's there, and I start snapping to him. Parcells walks in. I go through all the drills. Parcells walks over and says, uh, hey, we're going to go up to the office now. You're going to sign this contract. I said, coach, I said, uh, my agent said, no, I can't sign anything yet. He goes, no, you're going to sign this contract. You're going to come up to the office. Okay. So I go up to the locker room, take a shower, change my clothes. They go, oh, Coach Parcells wants to see you know. You're, so I go up to Coach's office. He does his homework and knows I'm from Philly, right? He's got a Philly, He's got two Philly cheesesteaks on his desk, one for him, one for me, and drinks. And I'm eating a Philadelphia cheesesteak in Bill Parcells' office, and he's trying to get me to sign a contract. And my ignorant self is saying, "No, I can't." And I'm going, "What am I doing?" Right. <laughs> Make a long story short, I leave without signing the contract. I go to Atlanta. They cut me after preseason. Me and the run and shoot was a horrible fit. Went down there for numbers reasons, and it ended up just being miserable. Come back. I'm getting ready to hang it up. I'm going to go get my, finish my degree, be a teacher and a coach. And uh, I was working with Steve August. And I don't know if you remember, know, Augie, first-round pick by the Seahawks. Played a long, long time. Augie goes, what are you doing here? And I go, man, I said, I got cut. I don't got nothing else to do. He goes, you can play. He goes, don't, don't give up. He goes, you can play. Train, do whatever you have to do. He goes, I'm telling you, you can play. And I told him this story not too long ago. I asked him, I said, if you remembered this. He goes, yeah, I remember it. And he goes, I was wondering if you remembered it. I go, oh, no, I, I remember it vividly. And I, he was a guy that influenced me to stay in it, so I kept training, I was working in the in the coaches' offices, and Mark Thomas, my line coach, had come in and said, "Hey, there's a guy here who wants to see you." And I walk in, and it's Dwight Adams, who's the who's a college personnel scout for the for the Bills. He recruited this area because he's from Little Rock. Uh, good friends with Pat Jones, and he just looks at me. and goes, "I told you to go to Buffalo," and I'm like, "I know, man. I'm sorry. I got Bill Parcells with cheesesteaks. I'm down here in Atlanta." And he goes, uh, he says, hey, he says, uh, we're going to have a practice squad spot open up in a couple weeks. He goes, I want you to take it. I said, okay. He goes, no, I'm serious. I want you to take it. He goes, we'll be in contact. I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I'm up visiting my wife in Utah. She was working for her sorority at the time. She's a chapter consultant for Kappa. She was at the University of Utah. My phone rings, and it's my roommate. They're both in law school. Yo, man, the bill's called. We got it all worked out. We got your contract written out. It's Everything's good, man. You're good to go. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Tom? So anyway, they, they did call. And uh, I flew from Utah to Tulsa on Sunday. I got back on a plane Monday. And I flew to Buffalo Monday. Uh, Tuesday, I worked out and took a physical. I signed my contract Wednesday morning and practiced that afternoon, and I never left for 10 years.
1: Would you have liked playing for Parcells had that happened? I think you probably would. Yes, I yeah. would have. And
0: here's the rest of that story if you got a minute. So Parcells later ends up moving on to the Jets, if you remember. And he's the head coach of the Jets. And I'm playing center now. I'm on my third position in Buffalo. I played guard. I played tackle. Now I'm playing center. And um, it's Sunday night football in in Orchard Park and we go out there and I have one of these games and, and players will tell you you have, every, you have one every now and then you have a game where you are on and you are doing everything right and you can't do a thing wrong and this was one of those games I was playing there, playing a base 3-4 defense two gap at nose guard and I was beating this fool to death and um they took him out and put another guy in didn't matter it was blo- I mean it was just one of those games and uh so it's halftime, and I'm walking up the tunnel. You come out the one end. You start walking up the tunnel to go up to the locker rooms. And all of a sudden, this guy, somebody just hits me in the back, like, boom, and I kind of jar forward. And I'm like, what? And I turn around like mad. And it's Bill. And he looks at me goes, I told you you could play center. And kind of slapped me on the back and kind of put his arm on me. And we kind of walked up the tunnel. And then he went to his locker room. And I'm like, that's cool, man. Like, that. that's cool. And it's uh, – it's those types of moments I always remember.
1: Affirmation, yeah. you know, when you're, yeah, doing your job, Valid- you're doing it right. Yeah,
0: you get validated. You know, you get validated by Bill Parcells.
1: I mean, come on, man, you had to think joining the Bills that that run of you know four straight Super Bowls would continue, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's funny? About- all prosperity ends at some point, but right. What's funny about that is.
0: Um, you know, we used to follow the Bills in Tulsa because Gus Farratt's cousin was an offensive guard on those Bills teams, Mitch Farratt. And uh, so we, I knew all of the Bills back then. And we watched Super Bowl. We saw, you know, wide wide right, you know. And you get up there, and I'm there for six games. And all of a sudden, I'm there for six games. We go to the playoffs, and we have a bye week the first week. We come in, we play the Ra- the Raiders at home. It's like the coldest game in the history of Buffalo. And we pummel the Raiders like fifty something to three. We come back the next week against the Chiefs in the FC Championship game, and it's colder than the week before. And it just so happened to be it ends up being Joe Montana's last game. He rolls out right, stops to throw it, doesn't realize Bruce is coming from his blind side, and Bruce just absolutely obliterates him. Concussion, he never plays again. And unlike now where they have a week off. We played Sunday, we win, and we had a meeting that after the game. We get on airplanes the next day and fly to Atlanta. So now I'm back in Atlanta, by the way. But not with the Falcons. We fly to Atlanta for that last Super Bowl with the Cowboys. And you're like, "Wow, this is this is gonna." And we've got we got to the playoffs again, but we
1: never had a run like that. Which Buffalo teammates showed you the ropes on how to be a pro? Because I would imagine it took you a little bit of time to learn how to be a pro
0: ken hole by far ken hole was one of the ken hole t- taught me how to be a professional and probably you're probably the number one thing about being a professional and it's not just Kent, but it's also a guy like jim kelly is you have to be dependable if they're going to Make you a starter, they're going to pay you that kind of money. You have to give them a return. You have to play. You have to show up. And that's what I learned from them. I learned from that. I learned from study habits, uh, film study. Kent taught me how to study film. I, mean, I studied film in, high, in, in college, but I didn't study film like they do. Um, I learned how to study film, how to work, how to turn it off when you need to turn it off, turn it on when you need to turn it on. And, um, and all those things, and Kent's no longer with us uh he passed about five years ago or so, and it's funny I follow his son drew on on uh twitter and i uh, drew drew was just a little kid back then, but it's cool to see him grown up now as a man, a good man um and then and kind of him carrying on the stuff that his dad started, so it's cool to see that but now Ken Hall was amazing, and then also Jim' like I said, Jim. Jim Kelly was the toughest player I've ever played with, ever.
1: What comes to mind when you hear the words "Music City Miracle"? Mm. Forward pass. <laughs> it was. It was. Forward. I just watched it yesterday. Yeah, it was forward again.
0: They <laughs> weren't going to change it because there was going to be a there was going to be a revolt in Nashville, Tennessee. But it was forward. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it's it's just the luck of certain people, but. Uh, when we walked off the field, we had kicked a field goal in an incredibly hostile environment. Nobody understands what those early years in Nashville were like. It was the loudest, most raucous crowd in the league when Curse and those guys were there. And uh, we, walk, we walked off the field winning that football game, getting ready to go to the next week of the playoffs, and we have a guy run out of his lane on on kick return, and or kickoff, rather, and the rest is history.
1: Did you take any – modicum of comfort when kevin dyson was the titans receiver who was tackled by the rams before <laughs> hitting the end zone to end the super bowl that same season i know it was funny is is everybody i just remember everybody
0: saying this is truly the afc like when we played them everybody was saying this is truly the afc championship game we don't care what happens from here on out this is the team that's going to go to the super bowl and they did and then they end up losing to the uh to the to the Rams and the greatest show on turf, so uh it's wild how things happen, but you know fate is what it is it just you know things things fall that way sometimes even though you can't explain it
1: you might be biased, but is that is an NFL offensive lineman is that the hardest position as a pro to play
0: well nowadays I think quarter it the league always revolves around your quarterback. you better have a good quarterback if you can't pull the trigger you're not going to win many games but um. Obviously, physicality-wise, you know, your linemen are the guys that take such a beating. We're running each other every play. Um, you know, I just turned 50. Uh, I've had a total knee now for two years. I got it when I was 48 years of age, or 47, actually. It's been three years. So, um, no, we take our beating. It's definitely it's definitely a tough position.
1: Your wife is an Oklahoman, Jamie, also went to TU. Was choosing Tulsa for a home after football an easy decision for you?
0: Yeah, I had told my parents. My parents, I was, like I said, his only child. My parents were living back in, they had moved from, from Pottstown down to Collegeville to get closer to my grandparents. And when my grandmother passed away, my grandfather came to live with us. And he lived with us for about five or six years before he passed. And I always, that was one of the best times ever, him living with us, because he was hilarious. He was a comedian. But, um... You know, I told them, I said, look, we're living in Tulsa. This is where we're going to live. So if you'd like to to be around grandkids or whatever, if that's what you want, this is where we're going to be. But, you know, I know that you guys have talked about retiring maybe at the beach, wherever, and my mom's like, no, I want to live by you. She says, the only thing I want to do is I want to live on, can can, can you see if you can find some place where I can live on water? She wanted to live on water, and she wanted to live as close to Tulsa as possible, in case of medical stuff, which ended up being the case. And um, so we found a place down on Fort Gibson. And, uh, you know, and so they moved out here in 1999. And my dad
1: passed away in 09, but my mother's still here and she still lives down there and, you know, doing good. Post-football careers included jobs and sales and, as everyone who knows you, broadcasting. Did you ever <laughs> think as a player someday you'd – end up hosting sports talk radio shows i don't even know if i would
0: i knew that i wanted to because i had grown up in the hub of sports radio as a kid um philadelphia was you know other than the fan in new york city wip in philadelphia was the god it was the the jump off of sports radio in the country um angelo cataldi still on the air like 40 years later he's still on the air smack talking right still doing it (laughs) And I and I wonder sometimes about their content. It's it's the same content model as they did back when I was a kid, but <laughs> it works. You know, you just up there, you just hate everything, and people like you, and you get ratings. Old stubborn folks, <laughs> huh? Right, exactly. Um, but like you, I like doing radio. I like doing doing sports radio. But after a while, it just kind of wears on you because people don't understand the energy of the show is your energy. You've got to bring the energy every day. If the show lags, it's because you are lagging. If the show, you know what I mean, and it's just one of those things where after a while, it can be it can be hard to do. You know, my the best fun I had, and if I could if I could replicate it, I would do it again because it was the most it was the best time I ever had on radio. It was the two and a half years that we did the Big O show, and it was me Plank and and, and Poplin. Um, plank was just starting in it and ended up, you know, just becoming a program director. Pop was fresh out of broadcasting school, running the boards. And I showed up having no clue. All I knew is I had some stories and I played pro football. So I must know how to do something, right? If I could do that again, I would do it tomorrow. Cause those, those two guys are uh, some, still some of my best friends that I have in, in Oklahoma and, um, had
1: just awesome times with them. You hosted several workouts of high school and college football players at your house during the COVID era here the last several months. Ten years from now, how mythical will Big O's Pandemic Garage Gym become? Well, actually, the garage was was deemed the Gorilla Garage. Okay, it has uh, a name. It
0: has a name, the Gorilla Garage. You go in there and get big. Um, G squared was our was our logo. I'm um, I, I, working it to you at the time. I saw what was coming. I was in my office and I get a text message saying, have you heard the news? I'm like, what? He goes, they've just told the basketball team it was halfway to Fort Worth for the, for the conference championships. They just told them to turn around. And I go, this isn't going to be good. So I had some weights and I had a few other things and I started stockpiling, man. It took me a week to 10 days. I was asking people, can I borrow this? Can I do this? And next thing you know, the last piece was I bought this half-racket Dick's Sporting Goods. I went to my garage and I had a, I had a gym. I had I had a functioning. It's not it's not. I mean, it's not crazy by no means, but it, it has all the essential pieces you need to train. And it started with my my two sons, and then my son goes, "Hey, can we have so and so come over? Can I have so and so come over?" and believe me we were doing it and you can ask my wife i mean the garage smelled like a bleach pit for two three months because we did it right i Constant mean cleaning every kid that worked out that distancing bleach so i got a phone call or a text message from a good friend of mine paula and uh paula goes hey uh willie's in town when i say will i mean willie right he's in town he's looking for a place to work out all the gyms are closed do you have any ideas I said, give me Willie's number. I know Willie. I said, Willie, you want to work out at the house? Uh, What do you got? So I told him, he's like, sure. So I just had a rule. If you weren't going to be here, let me know. And when you were here, respect the place and work hard. And um, Willie's on the practice squad now with the Falcons. Um, He was here from day one almost until the end of July so he was here a good five months or more every day he'd show up he had the code to the thing he'd come in whether i was out there or not he would show up he's working out owen's working out the other kids are working out and i told my wife and she knows it too and she's the one that brought it up i would wake up in the morning i'd have my newspaper my coffee my computer i go in the garage and i'd be sitting there I'd it's like christmas i'm waiting all right who's the first one coming you know and the kids would come work out all day long. And I would talk to them and help them and give them advice. And it kept me from going crazy. I know that it helped them. Those guys working out in my garage probably helped me much more than it, it helped them. And uh, it's still there. We still do some stuff on it. It's just kind of waiting for the off season to happen again. Hopefully somebody shows back up.
1: Oldest son, Jackson, playing football at Drake in Iowa. Holland Hall senior, Owen, you've mentioned, recently accepted an opportunity to play at Army at West Point. Did your your boys ever have a chance? I mean, they were going to be football players, right? No, they did have a chance. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I never forced my kids
0: to play football. Uh, Jackson didn't play until he was in fifth grade, and he played because all of his buddies played. And his buddies' dad's, Talked them into playing in fifth grade. We played in sixth grade at Holland Hall at the time, so they did fifth grade so that they would learn how to put their equipment on for the next year. Basically, (laughs) Um, Owen begged me probably from birth to play. Um, That's a little bit of a stretch, but no, he begged me in second grade. He was playing flag football, and I don't forget through the table. Second grade, his mom says, "Hey, I'm signing up for flag football this weekend." He goes, "Nope, I'm not playing flag football. Stupid." (laughs) I go, what do you mean it's you stupid? Known, he goes, right? nope, I'm playing tackle football. I go, no, you're not. Yes, I am. I go, you're not playing tackle. You're too little. And my thing was, eight, I wasn't having to play eight-man football. I mean, I was going to let him wait. So he just finally goes, I'm not playing flag. I go, okay, well, you're not playing football this year. You'll go do karate because you know the rules. you got to do something. I kind of had the same thing my parents did with me, like make him do something. Get out of the house. Because him, him not doing anything is not good. No. And uh, so he went and did karate for a year. And the next year... He's like, I want to play football. So we ended up signing him up. And we go talk about the the maturity. He was mature enough mentally to do it. He was at, in the car every day wanting to go to practice. So he played in third grade, made some really good friends with the Bixby kids. Some of these guys like Mason Williams and stuff that are having unbelievable careers, those were all kids that played with Owen. I mean, they all played Bixby Blue, Bixby Red. I mean, they were all part of that crew. So it's really cool to watch those guys uh, progress and, and do good things.
1: I always say this though about my own son. No son of mine will not know the nuances of the of the game <laughs> of baseball, situational baseball, that kind of stuff. It's just osmosis. He I never had to really sit down right. and explain it to him. Right. Right. He just
0: picked it up. I feel bad sometimes for Jackson because Jackson if you could ask him what's one thing you would want to do, if my son was six five or taller he would have played basketball until his fingers bled. I've never been around a kid, and he's going to really do big things in this industry. He's going to Drake, and 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 it's broadcast journalism, but it's more, it's not that they are, he's not going to school to be a, a sports guy on TV. It's more of a, they teach now in a broad sense, where he's learning how to do Photoshop, editing, film, I mean, everything. And that boy knows, he's a walking basketball encyclopedia. That's cool. Puts He walks stuff out, points, and, and top. I mean, he's really good and knows his hoops. Owen, on the other hand, was always a kid that he always wanted to play football, but he always wanted to do the different things. Like, he the different stuff. So one day he comes home. He's in seventh, no, sixth grade. He goes, fifth or sixth grade. He goes, um, I want to play hockey. I started laughing. What's so funny? I go, There's this little thing called skating that you need to know how to do. I go, You don't know how to do it. I'll learn. Okay, so we went over to Tulsa Ice Oilers and talked to the guys over there, and they said, look, we got stuff upstairs. It's free pickings. Get everything you need. You'll probably have to buy them skates and just let them play rec league. Just let them do it. So he's doing the whole, you know, robot-type skating thing, you know, stiff legs, stiff arms. Within a year, he's playing on the travel team, playing travel hockey, and ends up playing hockey all over this part of the United States from – from San Antonio, Texas, all the way to Colorado Springs, over to Chicago. They even played in Coral Gables in Florida wow. and played in Nashville. Um, played four years of hockey and loved it. And then hockey is one of those sports where you get to ninth grade, it's like you're either all in or you probably need to go do something else. And, you know, he's a football guy, and the rest is history. But I, it was hard for me to press my kids into football because I knew the type of pressure that they would be under because of their last name. And I never wanted them to feel uh, inferior or, you know, they letting me down because they weren't. So I let them pick their journey the way
1: they picked it. You and your wife adopted twins when they were two years old. Christopher and Caroline are now 10 years of age. That's not an easy decision to make. I view that, though, as one of the ultimate sacrifices you could partake in, giving – to another human how so, did that come about for you guys we
0: were doing emergency foster parenting my wife loves babies always has and she's like i found it she comes home she goes i found a way to have babies and and i can get all the babies i want and we're like well how's that so she explained this whole emergency infant uh foster care stuff to me so we went to we went through a foundation bear foundation and uh we got certified and we started watching kids and we had probably 13, 13 kids, um, before we got to the twins and the twins showed up there two and a half and, um, just, you know, we had them and nobody fought for them. I mean, nobody, nobody fought for them. Nobody stood up for them. And they were here through some, for a long time. And we were just like, it's the right thing to do. And it's still tough. I mean, it's tough. They have things that they work through. You know, they have things that they, not their fault, you know, stuff that is not their fault. It's things that happen that they had no control over, but we're working through it. They go to Holland Hall and, and you know, some things are easier for them than other things, but they're doing well and they're getting bigger and they're smarter and, you know,
1: but it is tough. I mean, it's a it's a hard thing to do let's finish with this 2018 university of Tulsa football retires your jersey what was that day like for you um
0: it was odd it was weird there's a bunch of people there to watch it uh friends of mine people that I care for quite a bit not just family but former teammates and guys that I have a lot of respect for and um it was just, it just, in, in a way, it was really, really cool. And the same thing with my Hall of Fame, um, when I was put into the Hall of Fame, uh, and then this was the, obviously the Jersey retirement, but, and then my team was, our 91 team was put in the Hall of Fame X amount of years later, but my father had passed away just before my first initial Hall of Fame induction. And, um, I so wish he would have been there because he was so influential in everything I did as a person. And, um, so to have the Jersey retired was huge. It was a big honor, something I'll never forget. Um, but it just kind of was, it was wild. Like I was happy because all these people are here, but the one guy that I wanted to be here, he was there in spirit, you know, but he wasn't physically there. So that was tough. But, um, being on the field, with my sons and my daughter and my wife, my mother-in-law, my mother, uh, God, I love my mother. She's an amazing woman. Little thing. You, if you see my mother, you would laugh. You are like, there is no way that you had that child. I mean, she's like five five. I mean, she's she's a small woman. Um, but it was just a. It was a pretty surreal day. Pretty.
1: There is what less than ten that have their jersey retired. Seven or eight, I believe. Yeah,
0: guys, and and that's the other thing too. I mean, I am sitting there looking at these names. I am like, oh, Twilly, Largent. You know, Glenn Dobbs, the list goes on and on. And I had got to meet Glenn Dobbs and become friends with Glenn before he passed. We had played a lot of golf together and I'd seen Glenn out and about and just kind of learn from him, you know, the history of TU football and just how important it was to him and feeling the same way about my era of TU football. And uh, to go into, you know, have your jersey retired with guys like, you know, them and Marvin Matuzek and some of those guys. It was, it's pretty wild. It's still, it, talking about it, it's it's pretty surreal to be honest with you. I mean, it's 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 something you don't think of. Really appreciate your time. No, this has been great. I mean, this was fun. This is really good. I appreciate you coming to the house and and uh, and doing this.
1: This is this is awesome stuff. The Tulsa Sports Drill is a production of SCT Sports and is underwritten by the lawyers of Kendall Whittier. Find them online at Kendallwittierlaw.com. For more episodes of the drill, visit Tulsa SportsDrill.buzzsprout.com.